Allow me to say a couple things as people get settled there in the back and as parents come back in. It was a blessing to be away in Memphis with General Assembly. We had a great time with our, our pastoral team as well as just we did get to see the Lord answer our prayer. We met with other pastors and friends and got to be an encouragement, I think, to some others and got to be hospitable. Um, to pastors that might be solo church pastors, small church pastors, and just say, hey, come with us to dinner. And it was just a special time to form relationships. So thank you for that. Um, do pray for AJ. He's preaching at some point here in a bit, if not already, over at a sister church, a small church in Jonesboro. And it's special to be able to have him do that. And then finally, just a small announcement. If you haven't sauntered up to the third floor, I meant to say this last service, but I forgot. Work your way up there. Uh, we're already kind of midway on moving our offices to the third floor, so we'll have access to classrooms on the second floor. So as you glance at that, do say a prayer, because that should be done over the next months of the summer. But we do want you to know that we're, we're expecting in the next week or two, the city is going to help finally get everything in order for the permits and everything for the, ele or the architectural drawings for the elevator. So we can begin that. It's been so slow, and that's slow outside of really the our control. So just want you to know we're continuing to thank God for what he's doing among us. Also just want to encourage you to glance around here and there and may it encourage you all the more. It's Father's Day and this is going to be, I hope, very germane for fathers, but this is not a Father's Day sermon, much the same as I have shared with you all on Mother's Day. We're going to enter into the very last four verses of Matthew chapter 10. This will be the last sermon I'll preach on the gospel of Matthew for six weeks. Uh, with the sabbatical upcoming, and next week I'm, I'll be here, but I'm going to preach on rest. And what does the Bible say about rest from Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4? And so maybe that's the word that you need to hear as well. Hope you'll be there with us. So that's going to be a little bit of a one-off before we head out of town. But we come to these really encouraging verses that actually end what has been a very difficult chapter, right? So in, Ma in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus gives his instructions to his 12 apostles he's going to send out, and he has said some hard things. I mean, he has talked very directly about how they need to be fearless, how they need to not be worthless, carry their cross, don't deny him, or they would be not worthy of his cross, right? Last week, we looked at the fact that he says, you're going to, you're going to go through a lot of unrest if you follow me. You will not know peace. If you're a peacemaker or a people pleaser, if you're going to follow as a disciple, your life will be tumultuous because in some regards, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace on earth. Not until the day I return and bring it eternally in the new heavens and new earth, but you will experience a life of tumult. And we talked about that last week. But here we come and we realize that to those to whom Jesus is demanding 100% loyalty, now you can't have any other earthly relationship that's going to trump the relationship you have with your Savior and King if you would be his disciple. He's been strong about that, but he ends on a very encouraging note about the results of discipleship, or you could say the reward of discipleship. So the calling is absolute. The sacrifice must be whole. But the promise return to a disciple is immense and beautiful. So would you stand with me and I'll read the very last four verses of this single instruction of Jesus to his 12 disciples. This is the word of God. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of God. God, I just ask that you would perk our ears up and minimize our distractions and help us to not forget what we spent the last five, six weeks on, all these words you've taught your disciples, and, and they end with word about a reward and what we can anticipate and the confidence that we ought to have. They also call us sort of in a final way in this instruction from you, Jesus, to die to ourselves and give up our life. And I pray you'd help us to know how that ought look. Holy Spirit, do that work in our individual hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I would like to enter in and just ask two questions to start. Very direct questions, and you need to provide your own answer. What do you spend most of your days looking for? What is in the center of your search for what you hope to find in life? Maybe you need to think about the past week. Maybe some of you, it would be more helpful for me to say your previous chapter of life. Maybe you've just gone through a chapter change and you look back. What did you spend that chapter searching for? Second question. In this world in which we live, what are we told should be in the center of what we search for? What does the world tell us we need to find if we would experience life. Some examples. Happiness. Love. Money. Power. Peace. What does the world tell us needs to be in the center of our search? I was in a conversation with a friend a few weeks ago, does not go to our church, is actually in ministry, and he talked about the world selling the lie that progress is what we need the most. Progress, that's what we're to search for. In every sphere of life, how do you make sure you're not stasis? He said, Jim, I don't know if you know, but missiologists pretty much universally agree that Christ and his kingdom advances faster, multiplies more deeply, where disciples are disciples in places of poverty and pain and persecution. Why is that? Because the, the, the lie is not being bought that having more abundance and faster progress is really the goal of life because it's people who are actually hoping there's food to put in the mouth of their children. Who are actually hoping that there will be safety when they're in a place of violence. And yet we live in a world, Western, upper middle class culture, which says, no, life for you is if you get more of what will make you feel more like you. Jesus comes at us and he says one more very heavy thing. If you are to be my disciples, your life is about losing your life. And if you will lose your life, you will find life. And so he says it there in our first verse. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In a world that is all about finding self. Right? And that's what you need to find yourself. Preserve your reputation. Seek to preserve the self that you find. And by the way, make sure that others know of your legacy. Like that's what it's all about. 
Jesus turns it upside down. It reminds me of that great graduation talk by Kevin DeYoung. If you've watched, it's not long. He wrote a book as a result of it. Here's what he said to graduates, college graduates. He says, whatever you do, do not try to be true to yourself. That was his graduation speech. Don't try to find yourself and spend the rest of your life trying to be true to that self that you've found. Can't be the way of a disciple because Jesus says the opposite. Discipleship is about losing your life. Now, what does he mean by losing life? One commentator says, well, he's just mentioned taking up the cross and following him. So it seems clear the reference in this little paradoxical epigram of losing life, if it, if it means anything at all, it's to be taken literally, right? He's talking to people who will literally lose their life, many of them, or who will lose their literal life, however you say that. And well prior to surrendering to martyrdom, Jesus is certainly saying you must be willing to give up the rights to yourself, to your life, because you're following after Jesus and that's what he came to do. So if you're going to follow Jesus, we have to consider that his Messiahship is about him laying down his life. There's short quotes on the back of your bulletin. One is by James Edwards. He says this, a wrong view of discipleship, excuse me, of Messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. Let's think about that. So if, if we think that the Messiah's path is actually going to be a path of political power, then what will discipleship be about? A certain amount of political prestige and power. If we think Messiahship is about fighting flesh and blood with the weapons of flesh and blood, what will we think discipleship is about? If we think Messiahship means that he's the king, he can do whatever he wants, so his life is one of ease and comfort, what will we think discipleship's about? Comfortable, cool kids who love Jesus. And it's anything but that, Jesus says. This is going to cost you your life. Here's the direct upside-down teaching of Jesus. If you're going to follow me and my life is about laying down my life, then a disciple must choose this life or his life. This world or his kingdom? And this is where he leaves the 12 before he sends them out. Like, this is it. This is what you're being called to. This is what you must decide. Reminds me of that great song. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. But give me Jesus. Let me dig deeper here. Because what does this actually mean? I showed this to the first service. I don't usually do this. But if you've ever seen my sermon notes, my brain's messed up. And so usually I print out my sermons on Thursday or Friday. But since we were General Assembly, I've been working on this for a few weeks. I printed out what I had. So I could just take it with me and sit there during these long meetings. And, and this is what my notes look like. It's mostly black saying, don't say that. That makes no sense. Make it simpler. So what I can actually read of my chicken scratch is this. What is the life we're supposed to lose? I think it's whatever we think we need with a personal possessive in front of it. With the word my in front of it. The life we must lose is this life, the life that it's a, that's about my security, my future, my strength, my comfort, my control, my plans, my list, my pleasure, my feelings, my identity. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying to lose that life is to change ownership, change the possessive. And I'll use the same exact words I just read to you. 
Life must be about his security, his future, his strength, his comfort, his control, his plans, his list, his pleasure, and his identity. That's what's being said here. It reminds me of Isaiah 43, verse 5, and Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah 44. In Isaiah 44, verse 5, Jesus, I mean, Isaiah is talking to a people who've been rebellious and they're called back to repent. And he says, if you just repent, God's going to pour water on thirsty ground and you're going to thrive. And not just you, it's going to be your children. And here's Isaiah 44, 5 says that when the people understood, this one shall say, I'm the Lord's. I belong to the Lord. I'm owned by the Lord. This one will call on the name of Jacob and another one will write on his hand, quote, the Lord's. If you've ever, it's usually under my watch, but if you've ever seen what I have on my, that's it in Hebrew. It's Isaiah 44 verse 5. The Lord's. If I have any chance of walking through this life, I must know I'm not my own. That's what he's saying to his disciples. You're the Lord's. It's about losing life. Let me use a metaphor to try to illustrate this. I don't know if it'll be as clear as it is in my head. Say you own a house. You don't own it. The bank owns it. But you own what you can afford. And you did the best you could to kind of be right at that limit that's going to give you some discretionary income. And you and your family are trying to do what you can to make this house a home. But you barely have any pennies or nickels to scratch together. You're doing what you can. It's awesome. And somebody comes along to you and says, I would like to buy your house and I'm going to make it what I know you need it to be. Let's just say it's your father who loves you. And he takes claim to ownership of the house. But then what happens is over time, he starts to make incremental changes that would be better for your family. But you never thought to do that because in your own strength and with your own resources, you couldn't have even dreamed of it. And it's going to be disruptive. And the disruption is really connected to how much you look back at the new owner and say, no, this is my house. I don't want it that way. And he says, no, you've forgotten. It's my house. And I'm doing what's best for you. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Until you realize you must give up the ownership of your life, the new life that's offered to you under new ownership will not be able to get off the ground, so to speak. So let me use an illustration that's not metaphorical. This is a little bit more literal. I told my parents there in town this week, I said, I'm going to share this story. It's about my little brother who's not little. He's larger than I am and he was a better athlete than I am, but that's beside the point. We both were privileged to play soccer at Carson Newman College together. And I was a junior, he came in as a freshman, and, and he, probably more than I did, all he wanted to do was be a college soccer player. <clears throat> he was not received through the recruiting process, right? But he had the chance to walk on. So the coach gave him a three-day tryout. Now, again, I'm a junior, he's a freshman, little brother comes on to try and play. And after his three-day tryout, just to be blunt, he was cut. He did everything he knew to do, but it wasn't enough. Either wasn't strong enough, fast enough, or wise enough, I don't know. But because he was going to go to Carson Newman anyway, he went to the coach and said, hey, coach, can I redshirt? Can I just be a practice player? Like, can I get better playing against the athletes on the team? And the coach said, sure. We don't really know how it happened, but the way I see it is he grew six inches and put on 20 pounds the next 10 days. <laughs> he didn't. That's the way we remember the story. The truth of the matter was when the pressure was off, and the life and the path and the design he wanted, he had to let go of it. He played a game that he loved, didn't think about how often the coach was or wasn't noticing what he may or may not have been doing. He just played because 
He was not on the team. Ten days later, he started at center forward in the first match of the season. He started every game for the rest of his career if he wasn't hurt, and he was the second all-time leading scorer by the time he graduated college. I scored one goal and watched my little brother play all the time. <laughs> Not a perfect illustration, but here's what I think it helps me convey. Losing our life is not just about denying the bad habits. It's not just about denying the sin we keep doing that we, we shouldn't be doing. I think losing our life is saying, I will give up trying to be good enough to be on the team. I will give up trying to be righteous enough in my own righteousness to satisfy a holy God. I never could. I will give up trying to be strong enough to make it through this life of pain and temptation because strong faith in a strong Savior is only for weak people. And there's freedom around the corner when I realize there's nothing I can do, good or bad, that can make God love me any more or less than he already perfectly does in Christ. I have to lose my plan. I have to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, said Martin Luther, so that something new can be found. Let me try to unpack this even further. Let's just imagine you, by the Spirit in you, begin to lose a part of yourself in different sectors of your life. How much freedom for something new is held out for you? For example... By God's grace and strength, you lose your pursuit of self-love. You, you see it get diminished, the need for others to tell you they love you, the need for others to tell you you're beautiful. You see it start to wane, and you stop orbiting around your opinions of yourself. What freedom of, for something new is held out to you? But to realize that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Creator and our Redeemer, is worthy of your worship, and He has set His affection on you and and Worshiping him has everything to do with no longer worshiping yourself. Something new can happen in worship. Well, how about if you say, well, I want to lose the part of my life that says I need to be good enough and fix myself so that I need to be working hard to be more holy next week than I was last week. I want my sanctification journey to grow. But what if you lose yourself and realize that I will repent radically? I'll be more honest than I've ever been. I'll have accountability partners and discipleship partners walk with me. And I'll tell them the honest truth of what I do with my eyes, what I do with my body, because I need to die. What new freedom is held out then for you to suddenly have a power to address the sin in your life and the struggles in your life that you wouldn't otherwise know? Or... What if you say, I want to lose the life that says I need to feel good about my own identity? And this one's obviously a way we usually somewhat, I do anyway, tongue-in-cheek, make comments about the fluidity of our culture, where the culture's saying it's all about your identity, and they keep trying to change what the identities are that you should be associated by. It's just an absolutely visibly bankrupt path to take, right? And we talk about it all the time, but how much do you struggle with being identified by how you feel. And what would it look like if you actually die to your feelings as the dominant indicator of who you are? Doesn't the Bible say that you actually will experience his identity, Christ in you, the hope of glory all the more because it's not you in you, the hope of other people? What if you lose the life that says it's really about defending your own rights and all the ways you think you're right in an argument? And if you die to having to win every argument, what new life is held out for a marriage? 
where two people are at odds and they can't find peace. But one says, I will die to having to be right in this. I do think I'm right, but I'll die because I see our love is dying. I'm going to die to myself and ask for God to expose me to where I might be wrong. What can that do to create an entirely new marriage that looks more like Ephesians 5? Let me give a couple others. What if you do get up in the morning, you lose your right to your schedule and your control. And instead of getting up in the morning like I struggle to do and think of all the many things I said I would do on that particular day, I hit my knees and I say, Lord, I, I want to lose this day. And let's, let me apply it to you fathers. It's Father's Day. Fathers, you wake up and you have all these things that you must be doing for your strategic workplace and you must be thinking about for your family. You might be thinking about for your retirement and you go through all these things. What if we wake up and we lose all that and we fall on our face and say, God, who do you want me to talk to today? Yes, I have things I must get done, but in the, in the path to that meeting, which path do you want me to walk or who will be standing next to me in the lobby of that meeting, and what do you have for me today? What do you have for my wife and my children? What do you want me to do today? What kind of a new life is held out for you than the one with white knuckles where you control your task because you're barely making it? I know this is a lot. I'm talking really fast. Had a whole week to think about it and just draw lines on a page. Jesus chooses to end his instruction to his 12 disciples to say, Die! Carry your cross and die and give up your rights to your ownership of your life. That's his last words. I think what I'm trying to emote to you is the amount of blessing that comes by means of that path. It's Psalm 27. We will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living when our hearts are set free from what would otherwise oppress. And so that's where the passage kind of goes at the end is there's good reward. There are great results to those who will die to themselves. And so verse 40 to 42, kind of your second and only other point, Jesus transitions to talk about the reward that we receive when we lose our life. I think it's an interesting section. Let me just make sure you understand the big picture. This whole chapter 10 has had lots of hard stuff. Expect hostility. Expect peacelessness. You'll be very restless. You'll be pushed against. And at the end, he says, but I want my disciples to know you are a part of an unbreakable chain of relationship that ends in reward. Let me say that one more time. His last words to his 12 before he sends them out is, you are a part of an unbreakable chain of relationship that ends in reward. That's my best summary, verse 40 to 42. Yes, I'm sending you out where there will be much hostility. Yes, there'll be much pain in your heart and home. Yes, you will bear a cross and you have to deny your desires. But it's God the Father who sent Christ the Son, who sends out disciples, who impact future disciples, and there's reward at the end of that chain. That's how he closes it. So he says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet receives a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person gets a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives any one of you, my little children, even just a cup of cold water, the father's going to see it and give them their reward. Now, if you follow that, his point is pretty simple. Your discipleship is going to end in great results, in great blessing. It's a glorious chain and enterprise that disciples enter into. So here's a few questions. If you're a disciple, do you see your life as a part of a chain of relationships? 
So again, I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago. He's, he's a pastor and missionary. We we're talking about discipleship. And he said to me, he said, Jim, I think the starting place with any person I sit down and meet with is do they actually believe that to be a Christian is to be a disciple? A disciple has the path of Jesus at the center of who they are and their entire life must orbit around Christ. And if I'm talking to someone, they say, yep, I believe that. Then the next thing I say to them is, who are you then telling that to? Go find three people and pour yourself into those three people about them having Christ at the center of who they are. And this is what we're seeing here. This is that multiplication unto the nation's hearing. But it's a glorious chain to believe you're a part of it. And it ends in great results. So to walk through these last verses, I just want to hit some of the clauses to make sure we understand them. Jesus says, to receive me is to receive the Father who sent me. Do you know how encouraging that is? I mean... The Father's forgiveness and steadfast adopting love is given to all who receive Jesus. The Father's perfect protection, never letting one of his sheep go, is given to those who receive Jesus. And not just those who receive Jesus, but those who receive the disciples that sent Jesus, who believe in Jesus because they went. Second thing he says is the one who receives a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Now, this is interesting. What does it mean to receive a prophet? I mean, think about it. Prophets are going to hard places and they're telling people that God's law is being violated and God's mercy must be sought. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So what does it mean to receive a prophet? Is to receive the message to repent of sin before the prophet's holy God. To receive mercy. Well, then it says if you receive the prophet, you get the prophet's reward. Well, what's the prophet's reward? I've been thinking of this this week, thinking, gosh, what about Isaiah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah, these Old Testament prophets? As far as I can tell, you know one of the rewards they had? They knew God would never leave them come hell or high water. They knew they weren't going to be alone. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, he's told by God to eat God's word. And he says in Jeremiah chapter 15, he says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. So while people hated me, I just consumed your word and it held me. Or Isaiah was going to be sent out to people who reject him. But what did he get to experience first? What was his reward? He saw the glory of God and it held him. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, if anyone receives you, you're my prophets of my kingdom. They're going to get the same reward a prophet gets, which is intimacy and security by the God who sends them. Then he says, the one who receives a righteous person gets that righteous person's reward. Well, what is a righteous person's reward? I think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who's righteous. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water and he's healthy. And one of the things we try to talk about in our home is that, yes, we're, we're called to be people who repent and believe. But if all I do is, is repent and I'm not growing and conforming to God's righteousness, I'm like a shriveled up repenter. Right? I'm not thriving. I'm not living. And what is being said here, Jesus says, if, if one receives you as a righteous person and begins to implement the righteousness of God's law, there's thriving like a tree planted by streams of living water. But then we scratch our heads and say, wait a second. Not one disciple Jesus is sending out is righteous. And not one person who receives their message is righteous. And I think this is where the gospel's in the center of these final words. Who's the only righteous person who deserves the righteous person's reward? Jesus. See, Christ was actively righteous, as we would talk in theological 
Christocentric words. His active and his passive righteousness. His active righteousness meant that he was tempted as we are, but he never sinned. He was perfect. His passive righteousness is he paid the wrath of sin for sinners who couldn't be righteous, so he satisfied God's righteous demand by means of suffering the justice required. This is why he said in Matthew 3 that he came to fulfill all righteousness. So we know Jesus was righteous, but here's the question. What was his reward for his righteousness? As far as I can tell, it's full restoration with his father after his cross and grave and resurrection and ascension and returning to the right hand of the father made right and made whole and restored to intimacy. And the Bible, does it not tell us that if you receive Jesus or you receive one who's telling you about Jesus and together you rest on Jesus, that you're righteous in God's sight? That's our justification. Doesn't Paul say that we're found not with our own righteousness, but that of Christ? Doesn't it say that we're restored and now those who were not my people are my people again? And the new heavens and new earth is a place of full restoration with God the Father. That's the gospel in the middle of the text. But there's one more thing Jesus says, and this is where I want to close up. This last sentence is weird to me. Whoever receive, who gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he's my disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. Who are the little ones here? Is he talking about the little children? No, he's very clearly saying, disciples are little children. Little children are disciples. In fact, in Matthew 11, sometime when I'm on sabbatical, this will be preached. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, but you've revealed them to little children. Who are little children? The disciples Jesus is sending out. And if someone receives them and gives them a cup of cold water when the world wants to destroy them, the person who gives that cup of water and receives them will by no means lose their reward. It's this unending chain that ends in reward. Well, why would Jesus call them little children at the end of his sending words? R.C. Sproul says this, because Jesus does not want the disciples representative authority to go to their head. They're just little children who have no authority in the eyes of the world, who have no strength to protect themselves. And here, Kike stands up here with these two brothers, but these brothers are little children in Guadalajara, Mexico. And wherever you go and wherever I go, I'm just a little child in need of protection from a God who holds the world in his hands, who sees everything and anyone who receives one of his little children. And God's economy of gifts will receive an eternal reward with that child only in the kingdom of Jesus. So I'm going to close up, but there's a reason we read Philippians 2 earlier. I think the reason is because in Philippians 2, we have the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ, right? He was obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself, but God would highly exalt him so that every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and declare he's the Lord. It's going to happen. And so if Jesus' disciples are called to enter into his kingdom, then what two things need to be on our mind as we go out? Humility reward. For Christ humbled himself 
and he would be exalted with his reward. And everything true of him would become true of his disciples. And so Christian, we're going to turn to the Lord's Supper. But if you are one of the Lord's disciples, then what he did in his humility, which is his humbling and dying on the cross, needs to be paired with what he did as an exaltation. And so this feast right here, we look back to his humility and we look forward to feasting in glory in a new heavens and a new earth, perfectly safe. Would you be nourished in faith as you partake? But let's pray first. Father, would you nourish us now? I thank you for this text. I thank you for Matthew 10, this whole chapter that's just crushed me and encouraged us. And I pray that you would make us into disciples wherever you would send us for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.